we're in Psalm 22. We are teaching through what's called the Shepherd Psalms. And the big series is called Medicine for the Soul. The Psalms are Medicine for the Soul. And we're doing a part two in Psalm 22. So please turn in your Bibles there, Psalm 22, as we look at the Shepherd Psalms. The Shepherd Psalms are Psalms 22, 23, and 24. And uh, Psalm 22 is about the Savior and him dying for us. And it's an, an amazing prophecy about the details of the death of Jesus, his passion, his crucifixion. In Psalm 23, we're going to look at the shepherd. So you've got the Savior in 22, the shepherd in 23, and then the sovereign in 24, or the king of glory. We'll get to those psalms later. But we're going to move to the second half of Psalm 22. Before we do, let's pray one more time. Father, I do want to thank you for uh, the, all the youth that are here tonight, the kids that are here tonight, for our faithful uh, youth leaders, for all those who pour into our children, all those who minister in different ministries to make this midweek service happen. Uh, thank you for each one. Thank you for those who have taken time to come out tonight because they're hungry to know you better. They're hungry to see wonderful things from your word. They're hungry to uh, just to be encouraged and to grow closer in their love for you. And I pray tonight that would accomplish just that, Father, that you'd be glorified, that you'd show us what you want us to see and help us to obey you. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. You'll notice at the top of your Bible, this we started two weeks ago. And it opens with a line that Jesus spoke from the cross. And if you weren't with us last time, the verse to write down is Matthew 27, 46. You, it'll be very familiar to you. Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, verse 1, why have you forsaken me? Now that particular opening line of the psalm is quoted by Jesus while he's on the cross. And what you have to remember is that when David originally wrote this, he wrote it as a song, and he wrote it a thousand years before Jesus would walk the earth. And there's an amazing detail in this psalm about the crucifixion of the Lord. And by the way, this is before crucifixion was invented. Most believe that crucifixion was invented by the Persians. And when we studied the book of Esther, we could see that they would impale people. And it's brutal, but this is what they would do. So it was like a form of crucifixion. But for David to give this detail is nothing less than just the power of the word of God. And I was listening to a little bit on church history recently and I wanted to give you this little uh, nugget that you can hold on to about the, uh, the reason why we believe that the scriptures are inspired by God. And this, this gentleman, this particular professor was saying, if you want a quick answer about why the scriptures are the word of God, just know this, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. Whenever he was asked a question, he would often refer to the accounts of the Old Testament. He would refer to the time of Noah, the time of Lot. He would refer to Adam and Eve and so forth. He would refer to Moses and the Psalms. Jesus believed the Old Testament was inspired. He affirmed the Old Testament. And then the second A is that he authorized the New Testament. And that is in John 14, he said, the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance everything that I've told you. And they would write down New Testament scripture in the years to come. Jesus affirmed the Old Testament, 
authorize the New Testament. So if you're looking for a quick 15-second answer on why the Bible is divine rather than human in origin, you can go directly to Jesus. Jesus obviously believed the Bible. Now this particular psalm is called a messianic psalm. And you'll notice it is uh, directly a quotation from what Jesus said on the cross. In verse 2, he says, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer me, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy. You are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me snare at me. They separate with a lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Go down to 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me, 12 Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me and as a ravening uh, and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax and it is melted within me. My strength, 15, is dried up like a postured. My tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth from the horns of the wild oxen. And then notice this in your Bible, you answer me. Now, just to make a connection, in verse 2, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And then all the way to verse 21, the end of the lament section, now he says, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. You weren't answering me, but now you do answer me. And this is how life sometimes goes. Sometimes we're praying about something, and I mentioned to you that when we did the first part of the psalm, we did up to verse 21, that we have our why questions. And it is biblical to ask why. Uh, I am hesitant to do that because I think sometimes that's a little bit presumptive, but it is biblical because David did it and Jesus did it, so I guess we could do it too. And so they said why. And there's a lot of things going on in our world that, at, that really put upon me to ask the question, why? Why, Lord? I don't understand. And, and I think that that's okay. And I think it's even okay for you to voice that. To say, Lord, I don't understand this, but I'm still going to trust in you. And I want you to notice that the psalmist does do that. The psalmist is saying, even though all of this suffering and difficulty is coming my way and I don't understand yet I'm still going to place my trust in you. And then the answer comes. And notice in verse 21, he cries, Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. These animals are pictures of uh, predators, uh, power in the animal kingdom, kind of unpredictable, the wild oxen here. Horns are a picture of strength. 
Here it would be dark powers. And right from the midst of the horns of the wild oxen, the psalmist says, you do answer me. Now there's no doubt that the verse 21 verses, the first 21 verses of Psalm 22 are messianic. They're about the Messiah. They're what happened on the cross. And I'm sure you saw that. The piercing of the hands and the feet, the wagging of the head, the making fun of Jesus, the casting of lots and dividing up his garments are all what actually happened during the passion of the Christ. So there's no doubt that this is about the Messiah. And for a while, the Messiah on the cross, we get an insight into what he was going through emotionally and even spiritually, was feeling abandoned. He was feeling like the Lord had forsaken him. He was asking God, where are you? Why are you so far from me? Where have you gone? Why, as Ray Vanderlaan put it, a great historian, why have you left me all alone? I'm surrounded by all this hatred, surrounded by all this evil, surrounded by all this darkness. Where are you? And we've all felt that way. And you may be even feeling that way right now, whatever you may be going through. Certainly the last several months in our own country has made us feel that way. And yet, from the horns of the wild oxen, you do answer me. In other words, the answer eventually came. But I want you to hear this very closely. The answer came, but it did not deliver the Messiah from suffering. And that is an interesting thing. I was actually pondering this earlier today, and I was saying, Lord, you know, in this psalm, finally, David and the greater David says, you did answer me, but, but this psalm is written with the cross as the backdrop. So in what way did you answer him? Because you let him go through that terrible suffering. So how was his prayer answered? But what was his prayer? His prayer was actually, Lord, don't be far from me in what I'm going through. And yeah, there's some deliverance language in there, but essentially what the psalmist is asking for is, Lord, just don't be far from me. Don't forsake me in what I'm going through. And I'll tell you what, as a believer, we can make it through anything if we know the Lord is near. Amen? But answered prayer is not always going to be deliverance from suffering. It wasn't for Jesus, and it may not be for you. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't deliver you sometimes, because he has a track record of doing that as well, right? He can bring deliverance, but in the Garden of Gethsemane, let's just backtrack from the cross for a moment. When Jesus is in the garden, what does he pray? Three times he falls down on his face and he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to drink the cup of your wrath. I don't want to suffer alone. I don't want to be nailed to a cross. I don't want to bear the sins of the world. If there's another way, if it's possible, remove it from me. But we can't stop there. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's his Gethsemane moment. And Gethsemane is an interesting uh, word because it actually means the olive press. And the idea is, if you look at an ancient olive press, you can visit Israel and they'll show you an ancient olive press. And what they would do is the, there's a big stone that comes down on the olive and it crushes it and it produces precious olive oil. And Jesus had the Gethsemane come down on him. He was the precious olive, if you will, who was crushed for our iniquities that the life-giving oil of the Holy Spirit would come to us. Everybody with me? He was not delivered from his suffering, 
yet the Lord was with him. Now, the next question that we have to ask is this. So, when we ask why, the answer to the why question in the Messiah's case is evident to us, right? Because the answer is you. Why did God forsake him? So that you wouldn't be forsaken. Why was he crushed? For your iniquities. Why didn't the Father just deliver him in the Garden of Gethsemane and send those legions of angels down to deal with that mob that came to get him and Judas betraying heart and everything else that went with that fateful night? Because God so loved you. Because God wasn't willing that any perish but all come to repentance. So the father had to say to the son, son, I love you and I'm not going to abandon you ultimately, but you are going to suffer for the sin of the world because I don't want people to perish. God the father so loved you that he gave his only son. The father loves you. The son loves you. That's why he suffers, and he can say, you answered me, and yet he was not delivered from the cross. And I think this is something important for us, because we all know the reality of our world is that sometimes we suffer, and there are not easy answers, and we don't understand why, and maybe we won't know a lot of the answers until we're on the other side. Sometimes we get glimpses of what God is doing, and we see we went through something, and God had a reason for it, and then we can connect the dots, but not always. I want you to see another psalm just for a second. Psalm 40. Just go to your right for a moment. Psalm 40. The psalmist, again, David, crying to the Lord. And sometimes this is what we have to do. We have to wait patiently. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. Your thoughts toward us, there is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering, six you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, notice how this is also about the Messiah. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. And this particular verse is quoted in the book of Hebrews. And uh, you can probably see it in your margin there. I think it's, yeah, it's Hebrews 10, verses 5 through 7. Behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, that's the Messiah. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth. Note this, from the great congregation, back to Psalm 22. Now you're going to see a turn in Psalm 22, and the psalm is going to turn from lament 
to praise. And what you're going to see is a link from the answered prayer to the reason why this all occurred. And the reason is the church. Jesus' suffering was to save you and me. It was to finish the work of redemption. Just a little bit from my notes. You might be asking, how did the Lord answer him? Well, let him go through suffering, but the Father did this so that the church could be purchased with the blood of the Messiah. The Messiah, Hebrews 12, 2, did it for the joy set before him, the joy of fulfilling his Father's will, and the joy of purchasing his bride with that dowry of his blood. That was the joy set before him. The pulpit commentary puts it this way. The conviction suddenly comes to the sufferer that he is heard. Still the adversaries are round about him, the dogs, the lions, the strong bulls of Bashan, now showing as ferocious wild cattle, menacing him with their horns. But all the sufferer's feelings are changed. The despondent mood, verses 1 through 21, has passed away. He is not forsaken. He has one to help. In one way or another, he knows himself, he feels himself delivered, and he passes from despair and agony, even while on the cross, into a condition of perfect peace and even exaltation. He passes, in fact, from death to life, from humiliation to glory, and at once he proceeds to show forth his thankfulness by a burst of praise. The last strophe of the psalm, the last verses that we'll look at, is the jubilant song of the Redeemer. Now that his mediatorial work is done and his life of suffering is finished. Father, remove the cup. Son, I can't remove the cup. And then a chapter later, he's able to look at a thief dying next to him and say, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The reason he can say that is because he's suffering for that man's sin. He's dying that that man can be in paradise even though he's a sinner worthy of dying in the way in which he is. Notice now the turn in the psalm. I will tell... 22, Psalm 22, 22. I will tell of thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise thee. All of a sudden, this focus now comes on the word brethren. And it is interesting, I looked up the word, and there's a couple times when Jesus uses it. In Matthew 28, 10, he says, Don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee. There they shall see me. In John 20, verse 17, Jesus says, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. In Psalm 22, 22, all of a sudden, the picture switches from the cross to the Savior being in the midst of a company of the redeemed. And he is now giving praise to God. I want you to hold your place in Psalm 22 and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Take a look, Hebrews, chapter 2. The book of Hebrews is a book all about the superiority of Jesus to everything, to the law, to Moses, to Joshua, etc. And now in Hebrews, chapter 2, take a look. You'll notice that these verses get quoted. Uh, this is Hebrews 2, 11. Hebrews 2, 11. It says, for both he who sanctifies, Hebrews 2.11, 
And those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. There's Psalm 22, 22. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And then in verse 13 it says, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me, the brethren, the disciples, those you have given me, I've lost none except for the one who it was prophesied about. That would be Judas Iscariot. There are scholars that believe that in the midst of heaven one day, we will hear Jesus sing. Isn't that interesting? If you look at Hebrews uh, 2, just for a second again, it says in verse 12, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. What's your Bible say? I will sing thy praise. And it is interesting, on the night that Jesus was betrayed and he instituted the Last Supper, it says they sang a hymn before they went out and Jesus was betrayed. Jesus was a singer. <laughs> and the Psalms are songs. And if you can imagine for a second, going back to Psalm 22, being in heaven one day, being at that great table, whatever it's all going to look like, and having Jesus initiate a song, and you get to sing along, I bet you he has a pretty good singing voice, don't you think? In fact, I would argue that he is the inventor of music, right? That it, it comes from him. And I'm talking about the right kind of music, but I'm talking about the fact that God is a God of creativity and majesty and, and beauty. It is amazing to think of this aspect of Jesus singing. Now, the psalm will continue, and I, I want to just encourage you, and if you mark your Bible, mark how many times it says something about praise. I will praise him. I will praise you, verse 22. Look at verse 23. You who fear the Lord, what should you do? Praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. These are three beautiful responses to who God is. And what he's done in Psalm 22, Jesus has died for us, so we should praise him, we should glorify him, verse 23, and we should stand in awe of him. Amen? Stand in awe of him. Psalm 33, 8 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. And then it says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Stand in awe of him. See, this is what believers do. We have awe for our God for his majesty, for his glory, for who he actually is. And though our world has lost that, though there are many who have no fear of the Lord, God's people stand in awe of him. And one of the reasons they stand in awe of him is because of his great love for us. Because this glorious being who spoke the world into existence and holds it together by the word of his power condescended to save the likes of me <laughs> and you. It's amazing love. And that's one of the reasons we stand in awe of him. Psalm 119, verse 164 says, Seven times a day I praise you because of your righteous ordinances. 
Psalm 119, 164, stand in awe seven times a day. I don't know if I've done it seven times today, but I would encourage you with that verse. Man, don't stop praising him. It changes your life. 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Neither has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried for help, he heard. Now, this whole psalm is about the Messiah, so this answers some questions about what happened at the cross. And I'll let you chew on this a little bit, but many of you who have studied what happened at the cross and when the sins of the world were coming upon Jesus, when darkness fell and the earth quaked and it shook and everything, what exactly happened? Did the Father turn his face away? In some way, was the Son, uh, you know, I'll put in quotes, separated from the Father. I don't know how all that would work within the triune nature of God. But what I will say is verse 24 says that God did not despise the affliction of the afflicted. You know, sometimes when we're going through affliction, others can despise us, right? We can look at somebody else's problems and sometimes, you know, the world can mock afflicted people. And it's a sad reality when that happens, but it does happen. There are people who will mock others who are afflicted. It happened to Job. And if you were with us when we studied the book of Job, we learned that Job is a foreshadowing of a greater Job, the suffering, innocent Messiah. He became a picture of the suffering servant who was innocent but suffered nonetheless. And Job, when he went through his affliction, even his wife said, curse God and die. Thanks, honey. Appreciate it. Can you make me some toast? Don't burn it. You know, that kind of, I mean, come on, right? And uh, to be a crucifixion victim, uh, it was so, uh, just such a thing that was so despised in the Roman world that they didn't even want to discuss the word crucifixion. It was anathema to them. It was disgusting. And here is the God who made the world, God the Son, through whom everything was made, becoming a man, and suffering on the most despised, humiliated uh, place that you could be afflicted was the cross, to suffer in this way. And though he was despised and rejected, the Father did not abhor the affliction of the afflicted, neither did he hide or has he hidden his face from him. So that may answer our question about the dynamics. Again, I'll let you consider that. There's a lot going on at the cross and even in the psalm. But when he cried to him for help, what's your Bible say? He heard. God is described in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 as the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we can comfort others with the comfort that which, with, with which we've been comforted by God. When we go through affliction and God ministers to us, now we have a platform for ministry. And I would argue that many of you will find your ultimate place in ministry probably in areas where you've suffered the most. Where you can relate to people. You know, sometimes... You're talking to someone and maybe they're a brand new Christian and they begin to open their heart to you and they say, I've been through this or I'm going through that. And then you can share your story and say, well, let me tell you something. I did this. I went through that. I did this. I wasn't always a Christian. I wasn't 
born a preacher. I didn't come out of the womb and say, everybody open your Bible to the book of Psalms. Yeah. No, didn't come out that way. Didn't even roll a pulpit into the living room when my kids were growing up. All right, line up, open your Bibles. Although we did open our Bibles. Can I get an amen from the background? No. (laughs) And when you're going through your affliction, God not only doesn't despise you, the Messiah understands. And Hebrews 4 says, he empathizes. He sympathizes with our weaknesses because he was on all points tempted like us yet without sin. So humiliation, affliction, betrayal, unjust suffering, he knows it all. And he will not abhor or reject you when you're at your lowest low. It's part of the power of the Psalms. We can be raw and honest with our God. Our God used the affliction of the Messiah to bring healing to all those who will call upon his name. In fact, it says, by his wounds we are healed. From thee comes, or the theme is praise here, the theme of my praise. From thee comes, the NIV adds, the theme of my praise, or my praise shall be of you, New King James. In the great assembly, I shall pay my vows before those who fear him, a right response to God's amazing mercies. The afflicted, the poor, shall eat and be satisfied. Jesus said, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be satisfied, Matthew 5, 6. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. Notice the focus once again on the great assembly. It's like the second half of the psalm moves from the suffering of the cross to the reality of what it purchased. It purchased a great congregation. And in the midst of that congregation is the Savior. He is the center of all that we are. He is the center of all that we do. He is our foundation. He is our reason. He is our purpose. He is why we are here tonight. Because without his redemptive work, without his calling us to himself, we would not even probably most of us know each other. Amen? We never would have been one assembly. We never would have been one people. We never would have come together in this context. We never would have known the depths of what it means to know the Lord, to taste of His Spirit, to worship corporately together, to know where we're headed, to know our message, to know our purpose, to know His great love. I can go down the list. But here we are, in the midst of the great assembly and at the center of all of this. In fact, the one who walks in the midst of His churches, Revelation 2 and 3, is the Messiah. And it is here that we find the purpose of his suffering. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. From you, O God, comes my reason to praise. When I was uh, brand new to the Christian faith, I have to say that music was uh, something I enjoyed, but not something that I would typically gather together with my friends and sing. Rarely did we ever get together and say, hey, anybody got a song that you want to <laughs> belt out right now? Now, I know that there's some people who have their old high school songs, you know, they, they sing the high school fight song or anthem or whatever. That was not me and my friends. So when I first came to the church, I have to say, singing was a very weird thing to me. 
And I was typically like a spectator more than anything else. In fact, I grew up in a Roman Catholic household, so when I first went to a Christian church, um, you know, the, if you're familiar with the Roman, Roman Catholic uh, liturgy, uh, I grew up at a time when it was done in Latin, and the priest did a lot of the singing. And uh, so the Christian church was a very foreign thing to me. And then the singing on top of that, it was like, hmm, this is interesting. But the Lord now puts a song in our heart, right? And it takes a while <laughs> to, to get comfortable with this whole music worship thing. There's no doubt about that. But I love the fact that it becomes a regular part of what we do. And I want you to notice now this call. All the ends of the earth, 27, all the ends of the earth of the world will remember. And the setting is the death of the Messiah, what he's done. All the ends of the earth, and this is a cry of my heart, oh, that all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before thee. See, this is a main uh, verse in this particular chapter. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn. You know, mankind, deep in our souls, we know. The other day I had a chance to witness to a young lady, and I had about two minutes to share the gospel with her. And I began to, to ask her if she knew things about the Bible. She said she had a little familiarity with the Bible, and I asked her a little bit about her background, and I said, have you read the Bible before? And she says, I know a little bit of it. I said, have you ever read the Gospel of John? She said, uh, not really, no. I said, do you have a Bible at home? She says, my mom has one. I said, do you know what John 3.16 says? She said, no, I don't. I, says, I said, it says God so loved the world. He, he so loved you that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish. They'll have everlasting life. Have you ever had a moment where you look into somebody's eyes and you can just see the hunger to know God? And I said, I said to her, don't you think that if there is a God, and she told me that she believes that there's a God and that she even has faith. I said, don't you think that if there's a God who made you and who made you in his image, that the most important thing in your life would be to come to know who he is? She said, that makes sense. I said, yes, it makes perfect sense. You were made in his image. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. And she actually started write, writing down the scriptures I was giving her. Joe, what is that, John 3.16? And that's the book of John. And I told her about the church. And it was just, a, she had to go. She was working. So it was kind of just a quick moment. But it was enough just to sense it and to know that in every person there is a longing for worship. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a brilliant theologian the other day, and he told me that, there, that the occult is on the rise in America, that there is a movement, uh, many young people gravitating towards the supernatural, but not the Christian faith. The occult is on the rise. It's in the backdrop right now because so many other things are going on in our culture, but it's on the rise. Many people gravitating towards the occult, towards dark things, if you will, dark spiritual things. And this, this man said, and he knows a lot about this, he said, that's happening because deep down man has a sense that there is something beyond him, something transcendent, 
and he has a sense that he's a worshiper. And he said, and I would argue that if you don't go to the true God of the Bible, you'll probably end up somewhere else that's dark. Even atheism can be dark. And this is, this is a beautiful, powerful verse. All oh, the ends of the earth. Oh, that the whole world would turn. Oh, that the United States of America would turn to the Lord. Oh, that the church would turn back to the Lord. There's a prayer event going on in our country. It's called The Return. And it has a lot of uh, names that you would know that are coming together at the Capitol in D.C. to pray. And a lot of their focus is repentance. And on Saturday, uh, September the 26th, we're opening the doors of the church and we're going to host, uh, it's kind of like a simulcast thing. Uh, it's going to be 11 to 2.30 and it's going to be, we're going to connect to this return portion calling for repentance in America. And we need to pray. Don't you agree? See, we are at a critical moment in history, and I, I think many of you sense it, where we can decide to turn back to the Lord or continue going down this slippery slope. Folks, i got to tell you, I can't believe what is going on in our culture. Every time I turn around, another egregious, ungodly bill has been passed in our state that is almost unimaginable and unthinkable. I don't even know how people are thinking these things up anymore. We are on a slippery slope and we are asking for God to judge us. And I'll tell you, COVID-19 was a wake-up call and I pray that your passion for the Lord doesn't, doesn't wane right now because we're at a tipping point with that as well. And I believe the enemy is trying to thwart revival by doing some clever things in the church, by causing division in political things and stuff like that, please let's be sensitive to how the Holy Spirit might be speaking to us at this hour. This is an amazing time, but it is a very strategic hour. Oh, that we would turn back to the Lord. Because Peter says that judgment begins in the household of God. And it's going to start with us. And he says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, if they will seek my face, if they will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, then I will forgive their sin, then I will heal their land. Yes, that was spoken to ancient Israel, but the principles are still applicable today. God will honor repentance. And I have to look at my own heart and say, oh Lord, help me. Help me to live for you in all those areas that you want my obedience. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. I was going to add the word all, but it's not there. He rules over the nations. Turn over to Psalm 46. Quickly, we're winding down, but I want to show you an encouraging part of this very precious psalm. This psalm is going to be the anchor of our upcoming men's retreat, which is going to happen in October, on October the 10th. God, Psalm 46, 1, is our refuge and strength. That's the title of the men's kind of a half-day retreat here at Living Truth. Mark your calendars, October 10th. He's a very present help in trouble. Now, this is a great psalm. I'm not going to read through it all, but I want to take you to the end where it says, Be still, verse 10, or cease striving and know 
that I am God, and keep reading, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I take great comfort not only in the be still and know that I am God part, but I also take great comfort in part B of verse 10. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I'm like, oh, praise the Lord. <laughs> the Lord's going to accomplish his plan. I can fret all I want. I can do the typewriter on my fingernails. Some of you guys do that. Oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. It's all gone bad. It's terrible. It's gone. No, it ain't. The Lord will be exalted in all the earth. It's coming. To him, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Back to Psalm 22 and we'll finish it. He rules over all the nations. Don't freak out. <laughs> I know there's a lot of stuff to freak out about right now. So many things. But let's keep our eyes where they belong. All the prosperous of the earth, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-nine, 29, will eat and worship. Another beautiful promise. All those who go down to the dust, a picture of death and decay, will bow before him. That's another way to say Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. I will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. May the Lord give you increase, Psalm 115, 13 through 16, you and your children. May you be blessed of the Lord, maker of heaven and earth. The heavens are the heavens of the Lord, the earth he has given to the sons of man. This is a beautiful prayer. It's a prayer for increase. May the Lord give you increase, Psalm 115, 14, you and your children. May, increase, may he increase your righteousness. May he increase your hunger for the things of God. May he bless you so you can be prosperous in every best sense of that word, so you can give to the kingdom of God, so you can bless other people. I'm not talking about the prosperity doctrine here. I'm talking about that you'd prosper so that you can be a blessing. You can bless your family. You can uh, bless, obviously, the name of the Lord, but you can also be a blessing to others. Posterity will serve him. And it will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. I want to just park here and just give you a couple of thoughts about what's going on in our world right now. See, I'm not fighting just for this time period. I'm fighting for future generations. Should the Lord tarry? What I mean by that is should the Lord not be coming in the next year, five years, ten years, even a hundred years? We don't know when the Lord's going to come. There were people in past generations that thought he was coming and his, his coming was not immediate. So this is what we need to think about. See, our posterity, 30, that means our future generations will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Brethren, I know there's a, a lot of us who are a little bit older in the room tonight. You have children, you have grandchildren, you have great-grandchildren. Those of you who are watching, your job is to pass that on to your posterity. And if we got to pull them out from the public schools, then let's pull them out of there. If, 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 there's, if the nonsense of this culture is not going to stop, then we're going to have to be one of the forces in the culture that turns it around. Amen? This has always been the church's job to be salt and light, always. They will come and will declare his righteousness 
to people who will be born or who are yet to be born that he has performed it. He has done it, NIV. The psalm ends with, you could put it this way, it is finished, John 19.30, which is paid in full. Isn't it beautiful? The verse, first verse, oh God, why, 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 why? Last verse, it is done. Just a peek at a, another psalm just for a second. Psalm 31. Go over there for a second. Check this out. This is beautiful. It says, In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. 31.1. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. You are my strength. And then notice, into your hand I commit my spirit. This is something else Jesus said from the cross. Write down Luke 23, 46. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. And right after that, into your hands I commit my spirit. I'm not sure what the order was, but one or the other, it is finished, paid in full. Father, thank you for the beauty of the Psalms, they are prophetic, they are practical, they are raw, they are real, they are medicine for our souls. Thank you that you have given us this book, something we call the Psalter, the Psalms, so that we could be ministered to and we could see David's heart, the Messiah's heart, we could see honesty and rawness and questions and answers that come and praise that ends up being the song of our heart. And Lord, we know it's not easy. I know tonight there are some who are, have joined us or will watch this later who are hurting. They have questions. We talked about a night to discuss suicide. It's an epidemic in our culture right now. Life can be very challenging and hard. But thank you that even through the suffering, you are faithful. Thank you that the price has been pray, paid. It is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. We don't have to fret. You will be exalted among the nations. It is our job to occupy. It is our job to teach our posterity, our future generations, our children. And if we don't have children, to mentor somebody else who might have questions or may need someone to guide them and disciple them. Oh, Lord, help us to be busy about your business let us not be lazy about the things of God. Bless your people who have been here tonight. Give them a renewed passion and fervor for the things of the kingdom. And if you've not met this Messiah that this psalm talks about, run to him. He is the answer to all that ails you. With your head and heart bowed, just something this simple but this profound, Jesus, save me. You're the savior of Psalm 22. I believe it. I thank you that you died for me. You rose to defeat death, and I trust you now. If you're a prodigal, tell him I repent, and I'm turning back to you. I'm coming home, Lord. And if you're a Christian trying to fight the good fight, trying to walk in the Spirit, oh God, help me. Clothe me with your power. Give me your heart. And help me to uh, uh, just do what you've called me to do. And help me 
also rest in your grace that it is finished. To let grace teach me and guide me and let me receive it when I fall short. Thank you, Lord. We love you tonight. We praise you. And I pray that your people will just be encouraged and blessed. In Jesus' holy name, if you agree, would you say, Amen.